that we're going to be looking at today. Before we get to our, our message, however, uh, just a few things. Um, we kind of have a lot of announcements today, but a few things we really want you to take note of. One is we have our spring serve day coming up. And uh, over the past couple of years, we've done some different things. We went to, uh, we went to an elementary school and did some work there. Uh, last year, we went to the Christian Aid Center. We're going to try and take a, different, a little bit of a different pro- approach this year. And the Spring Serve Day isn't coming up till, till April, but we want to get ahead of the curve on this one because as a staff, we were talking about how can we make an impact that's maybe a little more personal in in people's lives. And so we thought maybe instead of going all as one big group, we could go out into the community and maybe serve some people. And so we need your help in knowing who is out there that might need service. Uh, Some of the ideas that have come to mind is maybe there's some people in the church who would want to set up here in the parking lot and do basic car maintenance for... um, for either foster families and or single moms, you know, they would have to provide the materials, we would provide the labor. But maybe you have a neighbor who's got a fence that fell down or a yard that's been overtaken by weeds or some other project that needs done. We want to kind of organize uh, Trinity into some teams and go meet real needs face-to-face with people and just serve the community. And so, Inside of your worship folder, uh, you'll see there's kind of some info about that. There's a QR code that will take you to a form uh, online where you can fill out some information. You know, give us an address and who this person is. And, uh, and we need, I don't have the details in front of me. It says in there when we need the nominations by. But if you know of somebody, a coworker, a friend, a family member, who just needs somebody to come alongside and serve them, we want to put together some teams. So our plan on that spring serve day is to meet here, kind of share a light breakfast together. We, we can't eat afterwards because uh, we can't organize these things perfectly, and then head off into teams and serve some people in our community. So that is thing number one. Thing number two is um, Jennifer and I were talking yesterday about how in the coming months, there's a lot of people due to either busyness or travel or whatever for kids ministry who are going to be out of town. And we're kind of at the bottom of the barrel in terms of subs. And so if you are willing to, to be a sub for kids ministry over the next couple of months, please contact Jennifer. Let her know. She could definitely use your help. And then our last announcement, we'll probably talk about some of these for, for a couple of weeks, is the elders, uh, we want you to know that, um, you know, uh, it, this was some months ago, we, uh, we started a search for a worship pastor. Um, and, and in the interim, we hired Carrie to come and be our interim worship director. That, that search has proved unfruitful would, would be an underestimation of, of what, uh, it's been almost nothing. We've had almost no conversations. The, the well is just very dry out there. So what it became very obvious to us in terms of not having any contacts with people who were really even interested and with what's going on here that we really didn't need to have a search anymore. And so we've closed the search for a worship pastor and Carrie's no longer our interim worship director. She is our worship director and she'll be staying with us for a while. So 
we're, uh, we're pretty excited about that. She's, uh, she's going to take on some extra uh, responsibilities as well and, and work some extra hours compared to what she has been. So uh, you might hear from her in, on some other things as well. With that being said, let's turn our attention to God's word. And we'll come to the text here uh, in a moment, but as is unusual for me, I want to to intro what we're talking about before reading the text. It would be helpful to me if I turned to the right book. That would, um, that would probably be beneficial for me. But as we've been going through this series on our church values, like what, what shapes ministry at Trinity? And we've talked about how God's word shapes ministry at Trinity and relationships shape uh, ministry at Trinity. And we want unity to shape ministry at Trinity and various other things, we, we come today to this value of dependence. And it's probably one that, that maybe needs defining more than many of the other values that we have talked about. Because it would be easy to say we want to depend on one another and we want to depend on God. But it, it's much more complicated than that. This, this value of dependence of choosing to be dependent upon one another and upon God really has uh, two directions. And I've already mentioned them. Mentioned them. It has a, a very horizontal component to it. That is, we want to be dependent upon each other. We, we, we hear a lot probably about independence in our world. That, that independence says, I don't need people. We, we hear about codependence that says, I can't function without people. And we don't want to be either of those things. We want to be interdependent. The difference between being independent and codependent and being interdependent is that interdependent is a choice. Whereby we, we make a willful choice to choose to depend upon one another. But this dependence isn't just between uh, uh, the, the people here at Trinity Excuse me. No, it, it is decisively and maybe most importantly a dependence upon God. Now, last week, we talked about the importance of relationships and how we want relationships and the priority of relationships to shape ministry at the church. And so we're not going to talk much today about dependence upon one another. If you were here last week, we talked a lot about what that looks like, and you can also uh, listen to that message online. Uh, but, but the reality is we, we need each other because people are the primary way by which God brings about his resources on earth. Now, not the exclusive way. Certainly, I'm not saying we don't need his word and need his spirit. That's a given. And that's really, in many ways, what we're talking about today. But God distributes his blessing and his gifts through people, through the church, through relationships. And so we, we need to have each other. To be cut off from the people of God is to be cut off from the goodness and blessings of God. Certainly not entirely, but largely. Largely. But today I want to focus much more on the vertical aspect of dependence. That, that is, that we are dependent upon God. And I think Scripture presents for us, and this is where we'll spend most of our time today, one primary test, the litmus test, if you will, of dependence upon God in our lives is prayer. Prayer at its most fundamental level is dependence 
upon God. Again, not entirely. Yes, there is, there is simply communing with God, spending time with God, talking with God. But, but prayer is in itself an act of dependence where we buy, where, whereby we go to God and say, you have the ability to provide something that I cannot provide for myself. And I need you to provide that to me, to provide that for me. And so it's, it, it is in large part asking for what we are powerless to provide for ourselves. I was driving down the road, flipping through the stations the other day. I had to look up the artist and the name of the song. I don't think if I was going to be a singer, I'd want to be known as Jelly Roll. But hey, here it is. There's a song by this country singer named Jelly Roll called Need a Favor. Uh, let me read to you the lyrics, and uh, some of them I'll, I'll probably leave, and some of them I will edit. But he says this, I only talk to God when I need a favor, and I only pray when I ain't got a prayer. So who the hell am I, who the hell am I to expect a savior if I only talk to God when I need a favor? But God, I need a favor. I know amazing grace but I ain't been living them words. Swear I spend most Sundays drunk off my rear than I have in church. Hardcover King James only been saving dust on the nightstand, and I don't know what to say by the time I fold my hands. But I only talk to God when I need a favor, and I only pray when I ain't got a prayer. So who the hell am I, who the hell am I to expect a savior? Oh, if I only talk to God when I need a favor. Let's just be honest for a moment. He's singing our song. Don't, we all do this, right? I mean, I do. Maybe you don't. I, I, prayer is oftentimes a struggle. It's discipline. It's work. It's easy to neglect. And when things are going well and we have all we need and we think we can provide everything for ourselves, we tend to not be very dependent upon God until something goes wrong I think, you know, it's a country song, and I'm not making a joke here, but I'm, I'm pretty sure the, the favor he needs is this, that his girl won't leave. Maybe if he didn't live out the beginning of this song, she might have stuck around. I don't, I don't know. Hopefully that would be true. But, but when something is going on that we are powerless to provide for ourselves, we hit our knees, and we ask God for something that, that we can't provide ourselves. And that brings us, strangely, to our text today where Paul prays right in the book of Ephesians for something that he cannot provide for the Ephesians. So look with me at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through, we'll actually go through the end of uh, the chapter, through 21. For this reason, and we'll talk about the reason later, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
Not to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I want to look today at four prayers of Paul for the church, after which we'll return to this idea of why Paul is praying for something that he cannot provide. There is a a main verb here, and that main verb is that he may grant. And what follows is is four infinitives, four four verbs that complete that verb. And so we're going to look at these four requests, knowing that, that as Paul prays, he's not praying, even as he pens scripture, he's not praying that his words may grant. Or that he may grant as he serves this church in Ephesus. No, he's praying that God would grant something that he cannot provide. And so the first, pra- the first prayer of Paul that he wants God to grant is strength from the Spirit. Strength from the Spirit. Now I have to confess that this is an incredibly rich passage. And for the sake of time today, we're barely going to be able to scrape the surface of this. In fact, I was looking at some of my old preaching notes because I've preached through the book of Ephesians before. And these verses, the last time I preached, it's not good. My microphone broke and I ordered a new one. Maybe I just have to hold real still. That doesn't seem to work either. We'll figure it out. It took me uh, three sermons to preach through these verses, and I still felt like I was going fast. And so we're going to be barely scratching the surface of this passage today. But his first prayer is that they would be strengthened in their inner being through the Spirit. Now, I think what Paul is indicating to us here is that he has more in mind. He's praying more for, for who we are than for what we do. We saw in Matthew chapter uh, 7, and we're going to return to the book of Matthew here in a couple of weeks, that, but Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 7 that good trees don't produce bad fruit, and bad trees don't produce good fruit. Paul is less concerned with the things that they are to do, and he's already written in chapter 2 that, that they are to walk in the things that God has foreordained that they would walk in, these good works that were set aside for them to walk in beforehand, in advance. And even though he's talked about the, 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 the things we're supposed to do in the Christian life, and in fact, in chapter 4, from 4 through the end of the rest of the book of Ephesians, it's all about what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to live. But what he's praying for is not that we would merely do the work that God has set aside for us to do, but that we would be the people that God wants us to be. The bottom line here, as Paul prays that we would be strengthened in our being through the inner spirit, is that God wants to do something first in us before he does something through us. He always wants to do something first in us before he does something through us. And so the first thing Paul prays that God would grant is strength from the Spirit. The second thing he prays for is a Savior in our hearts. A Savior in our hearts. Look with me at verse 17. That, that when, we're, when we're strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, it results in, verse 17, so that 
Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is where things become more result-oriented. He prays first, and again, I'm not sure I have all the time to unpack this today, but, but he prays first that God would do something in us, and I think this prayer is more that, that he would do something through us. I think what Paul has in mind here is primarily obedience. That, that Christ, and the word dwell here, is, is a strengthened uh, form of the word to dwell in. It's almost that Christ would dwell deeply in our hearts through faith. I think what Paul is saying is, as the Spirit strengthens you in your inner man, and as you live obedient lives to Christ, that God first does something in you, and then as you live obediently to the Word of God, you, your heart rather, becomes a tidy place for Jesus to live. He doesn't want, it, he doesn't want Christ to dwell in our messy, sin-filled hearts. He also doesn't want us to pretend like we're perfect either, but he's simply saying that, that Christ dwells deeply and most comfortably where there is obedience and not sin. And so he prays that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. Now, if you remember back to when we talked about how we want the gospel to shape all that we do, we want the reality of the proclamation of the life and death of Jesus to be in everything we do, because it's not, it's not us who makes ourselves good enough. We, we come to God solely on the merit of Christ. He lived perfectly for us. And when we have faith and are found, as Paul says so often in the book of Ephesians, when we're found in Christ, his righteous life becomes our righteous life. His death on the cross becomes as though we died with him. His resurrection as though we've been resurrected with him. His perfect life and substitutionary death and victorious resurrection become ours. We're found to be in him and with him through all of those things. But as we talked about this, this gospel clarity that we want to have in all that we do, one of the things I said is we need to abandon the language of ask Jesus into your heart. And so you might be asking, hey, if we're going to abandon that language, what do you do with a passage like this? Well, I would note that yes, Paul does pray that God, having strengthened us through the Spirit, would have Christ to dwell in our hearts. But notice that Paul doesn't leave it ambiguous as to how Christ dwells in our hearts. Back to verse 17, he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And so we don't want to tell people, ask Jesus into your hearts. We, we, we certainly can tell people that Jesus might come to dwell in us, that he might dwell in our hearts, but that he does so through faith. Now, notice that what Paul wants is that the Spirit would empower us so that we might have Christ dwell in our hearts through faith. And this brings us to one of the most important realities of why we are to be dependent upon God in prayer, and that's because God always works first. 
He always works first. I hear people's testimonies of, um, of how they became believers. And you know what I never hear? I never hear somebody say, you know what? God did nothing and, and I believed. What I hear people say is, long before I even realized it, God was at work in my life through these things. And then I believed. And so God is the one who goes first, which should, which should whether it's, it's ministry in the church or evangelism in the world, should drive us to dependence. But, but Paul's prayer is not only that we would have strength from the Spirit, but that we would have a Savior in our hearts. And then thirdly, that we would have strength to comprehend. Look with me at verse, the rest of verse 17. He says that you, being rooted and grounded in love... There's something, there's the next two requests. He wants us to be rooted and to be grounded. But what does he want us to be rooted and grounded in? Love. Verse 18, so that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Now, this is a bit of a confusing verse here because there's no object given. He doesn't tell us what he wants to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of. And so linguistically, um, there's nothing in this passage that we can say, oh, it's definitely that. And there's some different theories out there about what Paul wants us to understand the break, breadth. Man, I keep saying breadth. I'm just combining those two together. Breadth and length and height and depth of. However... He does tell us in verse 17 that he wants us to be rooted and grounded in love so that we may have strength to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of something that he doesn't tell us what. And then verse 19, he goes back to the idea of love and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And I think that the, the most logical explanation of what Paul is telling us, he wants us to have the strength to comprehend, is the love of God for us in Christ. He wants us to be rooted and grounded in love so that we might understand the breadth and length and height and depth of this love and to know this love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. So I think what Paul wants us to understand is simply how, how great Christ's love for us is. But notice that the love he wants us to understand, that he wants us to comprehend, that, that he wants us to, uh, and notice, no, notice the intellectual words there. He wants us to have the strength to comprehend this love that surpasses knowledge. Notice it is not a love that excludes knowledge. It's a love that surpasses knowledge. It's a love that more than just knows God loves us, but that experiences God loves us. And so in part, understanding the love of God is not merely an academic exercise. You can learn all the theology in the world and not know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. 
But what we also can't do is we also can't sit around and say, well, I don't need theology, I don't need doctrine, I don't need to move on to maturity because I just want to know the love of Christ. Yes, this love surpasses knowledge, but it does not exclude knowledge. He wants us to know what Christ has done for us in his life and death and resurrection. He wants to know his affection for us as he dwells in our hearts through faith. He wants us to know how big it is. But notice that he says, he gives us kind of this condition in verse 18 of how we might know the breadth and length and height and depth. And it is that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. With all the saints. That's where we really begin to comprehend the love of God. I think for me, my greatest experiences of God's love have always come through God's people. And sometimes in weird places, confession of sin and then being loved on by God's people. Asking for forgiveness and and receiving that forgiveness. Or, I mean, there's there's a million other ways that the church shows us the love of God. But it is with the saints. It is when God, as we talked last week, through relationships, pours out his gifts and his kindness and his blessing and his grace on us through people, when we hear what God is doing in the lives of those around us, when we see people coming to faith in Christ and having their lives transformed, it it is then that we really get to experience the love of Christ. And so this strength to comprehend that surpasses uh, knowledge It, one, includes knowledge, but surpasses that knowledge to experience. And number two, is is realized primarily with the saints. Now, I'll be the first to acknowledge that that there are probably people in this room, uh, maybe all of us, who have been hurt at times by people in the church. That's just inevitable. We're all sinners, right? The worst thing that could happen, though, is that we would say, well, somebody in the church hurt me, and therefore I'm going to withdraw from the people of God. Because I just want to experience God's love. That's insanity. It's saying I'm going to remove myself from what is necessary to comprehend God's love because of the risk of injury. There's a lot of married people in here. Hopefully our marriages are marked by love. Would anybody in here like to say they've never been hurt by their spouse? Of course we have. But hopefully we would all also be able to say it's been worth it. It's been worth it. Only God is perfect. And guess what? Even God injures sometimes so that he might bind up with grace so that we might see his glory 
so that we might be disciplined and corrected and move away from sin. But he has placed us in the church so that we might experience the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. When we isolate from the community of Christ, we restrict ourselves from understanding the love of Christ. And so there is horizontal dependence, even in our vertical dependence. And number four, not only do we, does Paul pray for strength from the Spirit, for a Savior in our hearts, for strength to comprehend, but also, and I'm sorry for this, I had to come up with some S word, even though this is not a common word. He wants us to be suffused with the fullness of God. It just means filled up. It's a word that just means filled up. His final prayer is that we would be suffused with the fullness of God and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that, in order that, so that upon understanding the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge with all the saints, the result is that you may be filled up with the fullness of God. What is the fullness of God in view here? Well, In some ways, I think it's God himself, that we may be filled with the fullness of God. But I think in other ways, it is in understanding what came in the three chapters before. And so if I might give you a brief overview of the first three chapters of Ephesians, and we're going to fly fast here. Paul opens by praising God for blessing us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Not some spiritual blessings, not part of the spiritual blessings, but every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And there's seven things, seven riches that Paul lists here. And I'll just rattle them off. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world... um, that we should be holy and blameless in him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, that is in the beloved, that is Christ, we have redemption, there's number four, through his blood, the forgiveness, number five, of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, there's six, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth, And here's number seven, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we all acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. I'm not going to read all three chapters, but there is one. One whole sentence of Paul in the Greek. That's his opening introduction in one sentence to us. These seven riches of Christ. The rest of chapter 1 is just this, this exaltation of praise from Paul for all of that. 
And then he goes on in chapter 2 to say that we used to live in our trespasses and sins, ruled by, the, by Satan, the prince of the power of the air. But God called us out of this, made us his sons so that we're no longer children of wrath, but now sons of God because he's rich in mercy. And he's done this through faith, by grace, through faith, neither of which is from us. It is from him. It is his gift so that none of us can boast. We are by his grace, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then for the rest of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, Paul goes to great detail about how the death of Christ has taken these two completely separated people, Jew and Gentile, those who considered themselves near to God. This is geographically because they live near the temple, but also spiritually because they have his word and the prophets and the temple service. And then the Gentiles, those who are far from God, those who are to be rejected. You think we have race problems in the U.S.? This is some serious race problems in this, in this day and age. And Paul says that the death of Christ has taken these two, he likens them to men, the, the, the man of the Jew and the man of the Gentile, and reconciled them into one new man, one body, called the church by, by Christ's death on the cross, thus making peace. And he, he tells us how in the remainder of the book of Ephesians that we might have peace with God, and, or not the remainder of Ephesians, but the remainder of 2 and 3, how we might have peace with God and about this mystery of the church that was never revealed anywhere else except here now that, that God has taken all of these people from every kind of diversity you can imagine and made them to be one united people called the church. Now Paul, at this point, has given us all of the information we need to be the people, to be the church, to be the united, God-dependent, God-praising, riches-filled people that God wants us to be. And yet, at the end of chapter 3, he turns here to prayer. One pastor likened this to the greatest race car that, that's ever been built. There was recently the fastest street legal car ever built was built right over here in Tri-Cities by some descendant of Carroll Shelby. Fastest street legal car ever made, over 300 miles an hour. And, and, and I think what Paul is saying is, look, the car's been built. It's fueled up. Our lives being like this car. Everything you need to, to live this high-speed life that God has designed you for, it's all here. Here's everything you need to know. But he bows his knees. And he doesn't just bow his knees randomly. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees. In other words, he's saying, Lord, start the car. Bring life to the engine. Charles Spurgeon said that churches without the Spirit are like windmills without wind until imbued from power on high. Windmills, the whole point is to create power. But without wind, there, there's nothing. 
They can do nothing. There is no power in them. And so it is with you and I. So it is with the church. God has made this incredibly powerful body, the church, that, that is in many ways the hope of the world, not because we're the hope of the world, but because Christ is the hope of the world and we are heralds of his gospel. But until the Spirit blows, until there's wind, there's no power. You can learn everything. You can teach your kids well. You can go to all the classes. You can watch all the right now media ver- uh, videos. You can have the best sermons. You can make all the attempts at evangelism that you want. But both Paul as he writes the very words of God and us, we're powerless to make any lasting effect without the power of God working through us. And Paul knows this, and so it drives him to his knees. God, you have made this church, this one new man that can have unity, that can have peace, that has every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Would you, by power through your spirit, bring it to life? We we must be dependent upon God. What What does this look like? Well, how much prayer is part of our preparation? Whether you be a Sunday school teacher for the kids or a a group facilitator in an adult Bible fellowship or maybe it's just preparing yourself to come participate in the worship of Christ on a Sunday morning. We must pray. Prayer marks our dependence upon God. God, as I I head to the church this morning to worship, to sing, to pray, to learn, I need you to do something in me that I'm not capable of doing, that Logan's not capable of doing, that my friends in the church aren't capable of doing. As I'm preparing this message, this lesson, this talk, as I head to coffee with a friend, as I go into my growth group, Lord, we need you to do something among us that we cannot do for ourselves. This is why, by the way, last week I said, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Because what's the first thing that usually goes when we get busy? It's usually prayer. It's usually dependence upon God. Do you pray regularly for yourself, for your kids, for your family, for your church, for your neighbors? We want to express this value of prayer in all our ministries. That's why we'll gather tonight at 5 o'clock for gathered prayer. And, and I, I got to be honest, I don't want to offer a guilt trip here. Please don't hear this that way. But it, it discourages me that a church of 300 plus can muster up maybe 12 or 15 people once a month to pray together. I, th- I, think, I think we can do better than that. I think we should do better than that. 
Because whether we realize it or not, we're desperately dependent upon God. Do we mean the words that we sing? When I fight, I'll fight on my knees. Or are those just good words to be sung? But then when it's time to pray, well, that's not interesting to me. That's not, that's not worth the drive. That's not worth the time. My, my Sunday evening once a month is, is, well, it's just too busy for that. I read a book some years ago by, um, uh, can't remember the name of the guy, Jim Cimbala, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. There's some good things in the book and maybe some not so good things in the book. But the one thing that has really stood out to me in the last 20 years since I read that book is he, uh, he shares a story of a prayer meeting that he was at and um, there was a, an Australian pastor in the church and, and the guy was invited to come up and say something. Maybe the shortest message I've ever heard preached. Uh, probably wasn't a pre- no preaching because there was no scripture there. But he made a salient point. He said, you can tell how popular a church is by who's there on Sunday morning. You can tell how popular a preacher is by who's there on Sunday night. And you can tell how popular Jesus is by who shows up to the prayer meeting. I think there's some truth to that. I think there's some real truth to that. Time in conversation with God together. And if we're reading through the lines of what I just said, I just said that we get together to talk with the king of the universe, with the ruler of all things, with the one who has the ability to imbue this church with power from on high. Philippians 4.6 is an interesting formula. We know it, at least as a verse. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We live in a world that I think is marked by anxiety. I know you younger folks may bristle at this a little bit, but, but I think... I think a lot of you wear it as a badge of honor. But, but what's this formula here? How am I supposed to not be anxious? How is prayer supposed to fix that? Well, I, I think Paul gives us two indications here. Prayer, that's talking to God, and supplication with thanksgiving. That, that's asking for things. So we're supposed to pray, asking for things, and giving thanks. Why, why is this the magical formula to combat anxiety? Because in supplication, we remind ourselves that God is all-powerful and we must come to him for what we cannot provide for ourselves. And in thanksgiving, where we remember the prayers that he's answered and the, the good things he's given us, we remember that he's good. There it is. That's the kind of prayer that affects our lives and how we live in the world. Prayer that remembers 
that we're dependent upon God and that He is good. And when we know that He's sovereign and He's good, it at least makes it a little more difficult to be anxious and fearful. Oh, that we might be a church personally, corporately, and in all of our ministries that is marked by prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess our dependence upon you. And as we're about now to come to your table, it is fundamentally a confession of our dependence upon you. We, we need something external f- to us. And, and while there's no granting of grace in the eating and drinking of these elements, it is a reminder that when we through faith are partakers of Christ, when he comes to dwell in us, we receive grace, we receive forgiveness, we receive mercy. And so may, may this act, as we turn now to your table, not, not only be for us a remembrance of your life and of your death, but may it also be for us a reminder of our dependence upon you. Lord, remind us that you have all that we need and that you are good. Make us a church that, that privately, personally, corporately, and in all of our ministries expresses that dependence upon you in prayer for your glory and for our good in Jesus' name. Amen. If those who are going to serve the elements would come on up here, we're going to simply uh, just pass these elements in silence today. And I would encourage you to, uh, to allow this to be a time of self-reflection as we, um, as we consider and remember what Christ has done for us and of our dependence on something that comes to us from God in Christ.